This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcasting every Tuesday morning, 8 to 9, Pacific Time on KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. Conventional wisdom has it that the war in Iraq, the Middle East crisis, and the war on terror are all products of a class of civilizations between Islam and the West. But in his new best-selling book, The Fall of the House of Bush, our guest today, Craig Unger, shows that these conflicts should be viewed as an ongoing war between faith and reason, between Islamic, Jewish, and Christian fundamentalisms versus the modern, scientific, post-Enlightenment world. Unger is an award-winning investigative reporter whose work has been published in The New Yorker, Esquire, The New York Times, and The Los Angeles Times. He is currently a contributing editor to Vanity Fair and the best-selling author of House of Bush, House of Saad. Craig Unger, welcome to Weekly Signals. Thank you for having me. How are you today? Uh, very good, thank you. Is it, is it cold there? Are you in New York? Believe, I am in New York. It's about to hit 70 degrees. Oh, very good. I'm flying out. Uh, <laughs> Got a little global warming here. Yeah, all right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so tell us, we're, we're here at the New Hampshire primaries. Uh, it's about time for George Bush's clock to wind down. How, but we're going to reel back now to the beginning, neoconservatives and the Christian right. How did that all come together? Well, it's, it's been coming together for a long time, over the last 30 years here. And I, I, these are two very powerful historic forces. And it's really sort of striking, as you mentioned, during the uh, uh, New Hampshire primary with Obama mania going on, it, it seems almost, if you read the papers, uh, as if everything has changed, as if the war is over or non-existent. It's not on the front pages anymore. As if Bush isn't even president. And there are whole new forces going on. And part of, of what I'm saying is that these are powerful historic forces uh, that took us on a radical turn to the right. And they're not going away. They're not in the headlines today, but they will be back. Uh, you can be sure of that. And the war is still going on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, what, just let's go back and kind of retrace kind of the steps that, that uh, how George Bush became. Is it fair to say George Bush is sort of a vessel uh, became the perfect vessel for these two very powerful um, groups. Absolutely. I, I mean, one of the striking things about him, of course, is that his father was president, and you see the relationship between him and his father, this uh, sort of this Oedipal battle that he's very, very different from his father in many ways. And, and, in, and I, I think what's sort of tragic is that he's destroyed his father's legacy, probably his father's greatest decision, after the Gulf War in 1991, was not to go on to Baghdad. If you remember, uh, that is, they drove uh, Iraqi troops out of Kuwait, but they decided not to go on in ba to Baghdad. And at the time, we had terrific relationships with other Arab countries. There were eight other eight Arab nations in that uh, coalition that the elder George Bush had put together. Uh, George W. Bush was very, very different. Of course, he's a born-again evangelical. And he put together an administration consisting of some of his father's worst enemies. His father had called the uh, evangelicals the extra chromosome crowd, which was <laughs> not exactly a compliment, and he had to apologize for that. His father had also done battle 
with the neoconservatives back in 1976 when he was head of the CIA, the neoconservatives put together a team that challenged all the CIA intelligence. And you can see them. Uh, this was during the era of detente, the relaxing of tensions with the Soviet Union. And you can see back then that they were distorting intelligence, twisting it, and they got uh, a lot of what they did prefigured the distortions and twisting of intelligence that has led us into Iraq. Um, and uh, so, so th those two major forces came together, the neocons and the Christian right, and, and they were the people uh, who his father hated. Yeah. So this. So uh, in addition to being kind of the the political and social forces at work here, you have this sort of what was it? Oedipus text is that how it was? Uh, yeah. It was the first chapter I call uh, Oedipus text. So they have this. So this subtext is going on. You have a, a, a son who was never con he was not considered to be the favored son. It was Jeb who was considered the most likely, as I understand. Well, Neil to, even, even Neil. And and then so you've got this situation where he's striving to be uh, the the alpha son, if you will, and and he and and so that's the subtext of this. Now, what's the relationship like today? Well, I, you Do know, we have on the surface, sense? they seem to get a, get along. Uh, well, that is, they play horseshoes together, and they have this mm -hmm. constrained father-son relationship that they take pains to display. Look how uh, how good we're getting along. But I interviewed people like Bob Strauss, who had been ambassador to Moscow right. uh, under uh, the elder George Bush, and he's dined with both of them alone. And he says, "Look, they, you know, they, they'll 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 have these uh, gossipy talks like how Susie doing in Midland." But they never talk about policy, mm -hmm. and and what you know the hero of the book is really Brent Scowcroft, who's a close close friend uh, of the elder George Bush, and he tried many many times. He saw the the war coming, and he tried many many times to stop it. He saw the neocons take over. One of the things I report that's never been reported before is the neocons got in there as early as. Uh, late 1998, when Bush was still governor of Texas. And they made these semi-secret trips down to Austin, Texas, where they sort of indoctrinated um, Bush, and they pushed aside the, uh, the, the, the allies of the elder George Bush. That included Brent Scowcroft, uh, Colin Powell, uh, former Secretary of State James Baker, and instead Paul Wolfowitz, Richard Pearl, and other neoconservatives uh, began uh, uh, tutoring Bush, who knew literally nothing about foreign policy at that time. It was there was a story a while ago. I'm, I'm sorry that, that uh, Bush had not traveled outside the country, or did he not have a passport until later on? In, well, it? he had traveled very, very little. It's right. quite extraordinary. I, I mean, I uh, again, Bob Strauss. I asked him for one word to describe Bush, and he said, "Incurious." And Bush had visited his his daughter. Uh, one of his daughters when she was studying in Italy. But it, it, it's quite striking to me. Uh, I, I don't know about you, but, you know, as soon as I was a teenager, I was dying to see the world mm -hmm. and get to Europe and so on. He was came from a very wealthy, extraordinarily privileged family uh, and had every opportunity to do that. But as soon as he got out of uh, uh, school, he decided to settle in Midland, Texas. I, I happen to be from Texas and, uh, you know, so those decisions are, are, are quite striking. Yeah. We're speaking with Craig Unger. The book is The Fall of the House of Bush. You mentioned uh, Paul Wolfowitz. Uh, 
in in the list of neoconservatives that were paying visits to Bush in about 1998, he was in line to uh, head the CIA, I believe. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, exactly. It's a, it's a very interesting story that I don't think has really been told before. And uh, the, the neocons had this vision of, of, of reshaping the entire Middle East, which meant going to war with Iraq, and it dates back to 1992. And when Bush came in, they finally had an opportunity to, to implement those policies because they knew they had a, a friendly president, president coming in, but they had to control intelligence. And what better way to do that than by having someone like Paul Wolfowitz, head of the CIA. Yeah. Uh, there was a problem, though, however. Wolfowitz, um, frankly, couldn't keep his fly zipped, and he was having uh, an extra uh, marital relationship with a woman named Shaha Ali Reza. Uh, she later became famous uh, when he was forced out of the World Bank, you may recall. So that relationship goes back that far. It does, and he would squire her around to various neoconservative events. And in many ways, it seemed to embody this neocon vision uh, of reshaping the Middle East. That is, here he was a secular Jew, she is a secular Muslim, and this was the romantic embodiment of the new Middle East. Well, well, one person who didn't particularly like okay. this idea was Claire Wolfowitz, his wife. Oh. And uh, she wrote a letter to George W. Bush. Again, this is December 2000. He is the incoming president. He's not taken office yet. And the letter said, uh, if I may paraphrase, um, you can't possibly make my husband head of the CIA. He's a real security list risk. Not only is he having... Uh, an undisclosed relationship, but it's with a foreign national. And the letter uh, never got to, uh, to George W. Bush. It was intercepted, I'm told, by a guy named Scooter Libby, uh, of course, of the, of the Joe Wilson scandal and, uh, and the Valerie Plain Wilson scandal. Um, and uh, at that point, they decided they couldn't risk uh, a messy confirmation hearings in the Senate so they decided to put Wolfowitz in the Pentagon under Donald Rumsfeld. And here you see the beginning of what became known as the Office of Special Plans, which fabricated all the, the, uh, the phony intelligence that led us into to Iraq. This is the phony intelligence about uh, Saddam's vast WMD program, which, of course, was non-existent. This, this is an update to the uh, Team B from the 70s. Right. right. This is kind of that. Uh, I mean, what, no exactly. You can trace these uh, this behavior on the part of the neocons, as I do, back to 1976. Again, when George H. W. Bush is head of the CIA, and you see neoconservatives, including Paul Wolfowitz, Richard Pearl, and so on. Elliot Abrams. Uh, yes, who, who begin distorting intelligence? Uh, 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 and that goes back to the days of the Soviet Union and detente. Well, this was a time, exactly, when they thought detente was, was America essentially capitulating uh, and allowing the Soviets to gain an upper hand when the CIA had been saying since the late 60s and into the 70s that the Soviet Union was, was, was veering towards collapse, which has is, which is essentially turned out to be the case. Uh, so, well, I want to I want to draw a, a, another sort of line uh, to the time when you just mentioned that uh, Claire Wolfowitz is writing this letter to uh, George Bush to tell him about her husband's activities and, and the risk that that would pose. Uh, to the time when uh, this uh, break in 
and I think that's the best way to put it, into the uh, embassy, the Niger embassy in Rome, and the documents that have co- that eventually came to light. We're going to get into that a little bit. Right. Well, again, this is ex- ex- almost exactly the same time when that stuff was going on with, with Clara Wolfowitz and Wolfowitz's uh, extramarital relationship. This is January 1st, 2001. Uh, and again, it's about three weeks or so before Bush takes office. There's a break-in uh, in Rome at the embassy of the Republic of Niger, which is a very poor African country. They only have one uh, major na- uh, natural resource, and that is uranium. And almost nothing is stolen, of, uh, nothing of value is stolen in this robbery, some stationery, some worthless documents, and so on. But they later, they wind up in the hands of a, a right-wing part of Italian intelligence, and they are later used to fabricate uh, forged documents. No one disputes that these are forgeries, and the documents, of course, say falsely, that um, uh, there's an agreement between Iraq to buy 500 tons of yellow cake uranium uh, uh, from the Republic of Niger. This is the story that Joe Wilson was sent down to investigate that led to the Valerie Plain Wilson affair. And these documents, I I went to Rome, uh, I went to the embassy, and I tried to trace the path of the documents. And though there are many unanswered questions, uh, I, I ended up finding no fewer than nine officials in the military intelligence world who went on the record saying that this was a uh, very calculated disinformation operation, a black propaganda operation, a deliberate attempt to mislead the American people. And you see the documents go uh, to the CIA, to the State Department, to uh, British intelligence, French intelligence, and the media, and so on. On no fewer than 14 different occasions, they were found to be forgeries. Did or, did any of did uh, the Office of Special Planning have any? Um, did they have their fingerprints on any of this? Uh, this this actually started before the Office of Special Planning okay. was underway. Okay, but you you the later same people. see it come into this takes place over a two year period, right? And you later see them. Uh, put it in the, the, the documents, even though they're, they're discovered to be forgeries at least 14 times, they do end up in Bush's 2003 State of the Union address as a cause for a war. And you see this type of thing happen with, again and again with very key parts of intelligence that end up on the front pages of the New York Times, and it's a spectacular disinformation operation that convinces 90% of the American people I mean, remember how, how scared people were of Iraq back then, and of course it all turned out to be phony. Now, didn't, didn't the explanation as to why this ended up uh, in the uh, State of the Union, was it, was, it Douglas, was it Douglas Fife, or who said they forgot? Uh, that was Stephen Hadley. Stephen, now that yeah. He's still the National Security Advisor. At yeah. that point, he was Deputy National Security Advisor. And I, I mean, I, I, I well, don't know how uh, it, if you it, have senior moments as I do, but can you imagine... <laughs> Forgetting this, oh, that's a forgery. Your job is to vet a State of the Union address for the President of the United States to make sure it's it's clear. Probably the most vetted document. I'm I'm sorry. Isn't that probably, it's easy to say that this is the most vetted document that the President will ever use in public. Well, it certainly should be. And, and, (laughs) you know, George Tenet specifically told Hadley twice not to use it. 
Um, and he forgot that it and was. And you a... forget, right? Fourteen <laughs> different times. Yes, I. I, I well, I obviously, and obviously, as you make the point in the book, is that well, people have looked at this as a as a failure on the part of intelligence. You yourself are saying just the opposite. That in fact, this was a triumph of this particular brand of intelligence gathering and dissemination on the part of the Bush administration. Well, exactly. It was a successful black propaganda operation. A successful disinformation operation. I mean, just think of trying to convince 90% of the American people of something that's a complete lie in order to start a war. It's a breathtaking achievement in in intelligence. Yeah, it really is. We're speaking with Craig Unger. The book is The Fall of the House of Bush. Um, Who should I be more afraid of, neoconservatives or Christian Zionists? Well, that's yeah, a good we, we spent a lot of time on the neocons. Let's <laughs> get over to the, 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 the neocons bother me more. I, yeah. I have to say, you know, the the the, the thing is, um, this is a very strange country, and I I grew up thinking, well, I you know, we're the country that put a man on the moon, uh, that uh, unraveled the human genome, we invented the iPod, and so forth. But in <laughs> fact, it's much more complicated than that. We're also the the country that doesn't put. Western country that least believes in evolution, that believes the world started 6,000 years ago, and that it may come to an end any day now. Um, so the, the Christian right, at, it, at its worst, has been transformed into a, a massive populist political machine. And, and I think it can be rather scary when um, uh, it's manipulated and, and uh, operate this sort of a right-wing electoral army. At the same time, the neocons really are policymakers, and they're bureaucrats who insinuate themselves within the bureaucracy. And, and what they do is, uh, is much more hidden, in a way. Um, and, and you see Cheney sort of uh, pulling their strings. I mean, they worked very closely together. But effectively, they created a separate national security apparatus that that circumvented and subverted the CIA. We spend $40 billion a year on intelligence gathering. They were able to twist all that to their ends and lead us into war. It's a frightening, it is a truly frightening history lesson uh, and that we're living through and we're going to pay the, con- we're going to see the consequences um, play out over the next, who knows, several decades to come. But, I want to, we have really been dwelling on the neocons. I do think it's important for people to understand that the, that the religious right, this sort of religious fanaticism, has played an important part in George Bush's uh, administration and the way he has governed. I oh, want to talk some about that. Right. I, 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 it really has. And I mean, you know, it's interesting. Um, you said that you used the term Christian Zionism, which I, I explain in the book. Right. And, and one of the striking things I found is that. You know, this is a phrase, I, I, I did a Nexus Lexus search of the New York Times. It's never appeared in the New York Times. It's not a common phrase at all. And yet it's an extraordinarily powerful historical force, the idea that biblical prophecy says uh, that, that uh, this land belongs to, to, to Israel and that we should, um, therefore, you, uh, direct our foreign policy that way. I mean, it, it's quite striking, I think. And in many ways, we're doing the same things that Osama bin Laden and the Islamic fundamentalists do with with the, with the Koran. We're just using a, uh, a different. Uh, we're using the Bible. Well, I, w- I want to talk a little bit about to tr- sort of draw this into sort of a down to a human context here. 
more uh, personal context. You had the occasion to travel to Israel with a well-known Christian, what do they call them, end times uh, Christian writer, Tim LaHaye. And I think your, your, your story illustrates a lot of what is going on here with the, this administration. Why don't you talk, talk a little bit about that? Right. Well, I traveled sort of undercover. I mean, I used yeah. my real name, but they didn't know that I, I was a reporter. And Tim LaHaye is someone who, you know, in, in the secular world, he's not that well-known. But he's probably the best-selling author in American history. The Left Behind series sold no fewer than 63 million copies as an author. Those are numbers that, Staggering. Uh, you know, that uh, boggle the mind. You're lucky to sell a couple hundred thousand, and still, you're still a bestseller. Um, but he believes in the rapture, and his, the Left Behind series is very much a contemporary narrative based on that, on, on the idea that we'll be ra- that born-again Christians, at least, will be raptured up to join Christ. Well, b- before we get too far into it, l- l- explain a little bit of his relationship to the Bush administration. He heads up a, some kind of a council of r- religious right. leadership. Right, he helped uh, found the Council for National Policy, right. and right. He, he has been voted by the National Association of Evangelicals as the most powerful and influential evangelical of the last 25 years, more so than than Jerry Falwell, and with Falwell, he helped form the moral majority and so on. And, and the Council for National Policy is an umbrella group that oversees uh, dozens of, of Christian organizations. Some of them are not that well known in the in the secular world, but you, you may have heard of James Dobson's Focus on the Family and so on. Right. Um, but they all fit under this umbrella, and they had a direct phone line to Karl Rove. So they would be part of uh, uh, discussions with Rove on, say, when I was talking to Falwell, he said, well, we just got off the phone with Rove. We were talking about uh, when uh, uh, Supreme Court nominations. They would be part of this decision-making process. And, and as an umbrella group, they could, I mean, when, when you think about it, there are 200,000 uh, evangelical pastors in the United States. So through their uh, several dozen organizations, they could reach out to those 200,000 pastors who in turn could talk to their 80 million adult evangelicals in the United States. And it's a very, very powerful uh, line to the White House and to a mass uh, electoral movement. Well, in in some ways, and I don't want to paint with too broad a brush here, but you could see these uh, 200,000 pastors as kind of precinct captains uh, if they're so motivated to in, a, in an election. So it's a very powerful organization. Right. In some ways, it's analogous to the way the labor movement uh, used to be for the, uh, for the Democrats. Right. So you went, you traveled with this group, with LaHaye, to Israel. I want to try and give this context, because these are people who feel very strongly that the, the end times are at hand and... Well, and just tell us a little bit about that trip to to Israel. You, you want the story about the blood, right? I do. I, I think it's important. That <laughs> he loves two, the story. Two hundred miles of blood and all one, that. One yeah. of the high points of the trip was going to a, a little town, the ancient town of Megiddo, Israel, yeah. and the word Har means hill in Hebrew. So Har Megiddo is the root word for Armageddon, yeah. and Armageddon, of course, is where the final conflict is meant to be take place, and. And so, so it's a gorgeous uh, pastoral place. You're overlooking the spectacular uh, valley, but it, but it's seen as the great 
battlefield where the final conflict will will take place. And as we were there, they read from the book of Revelation, which describes, which is a very bloody, surreal uh, book of the New Testament. And it predicts these battles. I mean, it, it can be interpreted in many ways. But as we were walking down, uh, I asked uh, one of the, uh, the pe- uh, several of the people, when do you think the final conflict will take place? Uh, and they said, well, they said any day now. And I said, but when? And they said, not soon enough, not yeah. soon enough. Yeah. And they also described the ba- valley, uh, seeing it as filled with a river of blood 200 miles long, four and a half feet deep. And they said it would be the blood of about two billion people uh, who would die in this battle. Who had not accepted Jesus as their Lord. And I Savior. believe my blood. Exactly, it would include uh, my blood. Yeah, <laughs> I think right. that. I think it's going to be. So the, it'll be the yeah. biggest blood bank in the history of the world. Oh, no, but, no, uh, so uh, go ahead. Well, I, have, I have one more question. Yeah, we're speaking with Craig Unger. The Thank book you. is "The Fall of the House of Bush." I was wondering. Um, has this neocon Christian right alliance run its course? Are we seeing the end of it? Have they peaked and, and they're going to see each other's flaws? Or, or where are we right now? Yeah, well, I, no, I don't think it's over at all. And I think, we're, you know, as I said at the beginning, we're going through this sort of weird time where they seem to be mostly out of the news. People are acting as if the war in Iraq isn't really going on right yeah. now. But you can see with Huckabee's ascendancy that the Christian right was there. And the, the, there, there are contradictions and fissures within the movement. You, you have leaders in the Republican leaders like Giuliani, who is not an evangelical. And as a result, you see him pander to them and try to get it. Well, Podhoretz is one of his chief advisors, who is the godfather of the neocon movement. A- absolutely. And yeah. he was one of the big uh, backers of taking the war into Iran. Right. And he also, so you see this alliance between Podhoretz and Pat Robertson, who who has written some you know sort of anti-Semitic stuff, and yeah. um, and it's a very weird alliance, and it, it, it you know it's not working. I mean, I think Giuliani comes off as not believable to evangelicals, and that's one reason he's falling so quickly in the polls there, and Huckabee's gone up. Yeah, I think I think what you're seeing uh, in the Republican side is candidates, three or four of them, who will do anything anything to win the nomination and then including Romney and Giuliani and uh and and Thompson but uh but I I they seem to be retrenching so we have to be on guard we have to continue to be vigilant and it's books like this that allow us give us the information that that all informed citizens should have in making decisions about who will be the next president of the United States Craig Unger I want to thank you very much for being here on Weekly Signals the book is the How- the fall of the house of bush Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. And this is Weekly Signals.